0: You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable podcast, 20 Minutes with Hugh Howey. Hello, friends. I'm Dave Robison.
1: And I'm Lauren Harris, filling in for Brian Humphrey, who even as we speak is making horrible crooning sounds to his new baby son, which will undoubtedly result in extensive child therapy. (laughs) Oh, God.
0: (laughs) We can only hope. We only hope that's the extent of the damage he's doing to that poor boy. Uh, and, And friends, you have tuned in to a special showcase episode of the Roundtable podcast, 20 Minutes With...
1: 20 Minutes With is where we sit down with our guest hosts and ply them with a glass of expensive Argentinian wine, hoping they will divulge some of their secrets of their craft so we can all be as amazing as they are.
0: Uh, Did you bring the wine,
1: Lauren? I I actually, you know, don't tell her, but I'm stealing it from my roommate because it was her birthday (laughs) yesterday. She's rocking rocking uh,
0: the Argentinian wine, huh?
1: Her twin gave
0: it to her. Sweet. Sweet. Well before we dive into this Lauren I just want to say thank you so much for jumping in and helping out and filling in for Brian uh friends for those of you that don't know uh Lauren is one of the uh, glamorous co-hosts of the Pendragon podcast which can be found where Lauren
1: at www.pendragonvariety.com
0: bam there you go uh, uh, and uh on a, on a more personal note she's she's an illegitimate sister because both of us were were inspired by Justin McCumber over at the Dead robot Society. So this is awesome to share the mic with my sister. It's such a great time. It is, it is. <laughs> Lauren, let me, let, me, uh, let me guide you gently into the awesomeness that is the world of our guest host, shall I?
1: You may, go ahead.
0: Oh, thank you. Now, now, Lauren, you know that the best advice a writer can have, other than don't be afraid to suck, is, is to just write, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and while our guest host has certainly done that, Uh, I think he may have actually uncovered an even more fundamental and essential rule of literary success. Uh, When asked about his path to becoming a professional writer, he replied, It was always my willingness to say yes to any adventure, however ludicrous. Now, now that that is a fair assessment of this man's life, uh, and the really gonzo stuff doesn't happen until college. Uh, but before that, it's always college though. It is, isn't it? It is. That's when you just get insane. And trust me, whatever you and I did, Lauren, this dude's got us beat. But but we're not there yet. Let's let's talk about let's talk about high school and grade school. Um, athletic kids, smart kids, soccer. Okay, chess, and what a shock, science fiction. Uh, he's 12 years old. He's into Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game. Big surprise there. <laughs> uh, and, and even then he's thinking, you know, I want to be a writer. Uh, uh, and he knows he's got some kind of spark because at one point he writes a letter to his father on Father's Day. and And he really invested a lot of thought and care into this creation. And his father's reaction blew him away. Uh, Really, his father went so far as to share the letter with other people. He was so amazed at his son's creation. And this, for our guest host, was like discovering you have a superpower. Um, (laughs) So, you know, holy crap, I can write. But yes, while he could write, dude could not finish a novel to save his life. Um, Started several, didn't finish them. Yeah, that happened. He's 12 years old. What are you going to do? Um, time passes, uh, he gets older, he gets caught up in the wonderful world of computers, uh, repairs them for a little bit before eventually moving to Charleston, South Carolina and enrolling in college. Now here, Lauren is where things get interesting and our guest host starts making some very unusual choices. Well, it is South Carolina. Um, Exactly, which is a hotbed of uh, weirdness and podcasting and strange choices. Uh, So so I'm told, (laughs) anyway. Um, So, for example, enrolling into college. Did he live on campus? Oh, hell no. Our guest host wanted to save some money, so he bought a small houseboat to live on. (laughs) Now, sadly... you do. That's what you do, right? Yeah, but you don't buy one that's in Baltimore, Which is exactly what our guest host did. Oh, but wait, rather than put this houseboat in Baltimore on a trailer and drive it down, our guest host and a friend decide to sail the over 700 miles of open water separating Baltimore from Charleston.
1: Did
0: they and, have a tiger with them? Uh, oh, yeah, life. No, <laughs> no. But actually, you know, it's, it's, you know, this would have been a very short bio because dude almost died on his trip down to college. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe it was that. Maybe, maybe the defining moment, that near brush with death off the Carolina coast was what unhinged our guest host from the conventional, from the safe, from the secure. Because in his junior year, of college, he just got in his boat and he sailed south. And I mean south. I mean Caribbean south. <laughs> and over the next few years, he does this great Ernest Hemingway impression. Doing some island hopping, surviving a few hurricanes, and eventually running out of cash. So, now, at this point, he wises up, right? He's going to come back to college, he's going to attend some workshops, and he's going to be the iconic serious writer we are all hoping for, right? Right? Oh, hell no. No, our guest host returns to the U.S. so he can start his career as a yacht captain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the applause. You can hear that out in the distance, right? For the next several years where there's water and a boat and an adventure, chances are our guest host has either been there, is there, or will be there. Barbados, Chicago, Canada, New York, he's everywhere. And... You know, I don't know about you. For me, I'm thinking that's it, right? We've lost him. I mean, what could ever convince a man to give up the job of yacht captain to the rich and famous? Lauren, any guesses? Um think Princess Bride. Oh what's oh, the most pirate am-
1: pirates piracy? Piracy. No, it's
0: not pirates, it's too brave. Oh. Or true oh. love.
1: He didn't become the dread pirate Roberts?
0: No, he did not. Well God, That's I hope. Disappointing. That if it is, if it if it if he did, it ain't in the press. His his, okay, his press blave. agent has true. to blave, which is to bluff, which is to true love. Amber, the woman who would one day be his wife, <laughs> lured him from the bootless wayfaring existence he was following. <laughs> and eventually there was house buying and wedding having and things stabilizing, which is awesome. Now one of the things he started doing during the stabilizing period was writing for a book review website which was very cool because then our guest host formed the habit of getting up every morning and writing for a deadline a critical skill for any writer now during this time he covered a few book conferences uh, where he saw the same question surface time and time again what is the secret to writing It so happened that the panel he was sitting in on where this question was asked uh, included the mother half of the Charles Todd duo who got up in everyone's business to stop talking about writing, stop thinking about writing, stop dreaming about writing, and just sit down and write. And our guest host went home and did just that. Began working on stories about a character he'd been mulling over for a while, inspired by the awesome women in his life. They became the Molly Fied stories. And then... Then he was hooked. Then writing had become something that he couldn't not do. Now, Lauren, get this. Here's here's his master plan for ninja publication domination. You ready for this? I am
1: ready. Bro. Okay.
0: Step one: put a few chapters of Mo- the mollified story up on a website and ask for donations. Yeah, that was pretty yes. much it. That's that's all he had. That that was his big plan. <laughs> Exactly. Right. He, you know, he didn't have a lot of hope that this would make him make him a lot of money, Uh, uh, but he was enjoying it and and he was getting a lot of encouragement. So, you know, he learned how to write a query letter. He looked up some publishers, found one. They made an offer. He took the deal they offered. Now, if there's anybody out there who's saying, oh, you lucky bastard, just shut your mouth right now because, you know, luck. Has damn little to do with it. If you if you get a publishing deal, it's because you write a good story. So next, our guest host is like, "Hey, that was fun, but I'm not a patient guy. How can we pick up the pace of this whole publishing thing a little bit?" So he goes self pub, uh, uh, and he's you know he's content to write in his little corner of the internet, selling a hundred books a year or so. And and I assume that there was like a beret and clove cigarettes involved with this somewhere. But he was he was content to just live that life. Um,
1: like filling
0: out on his house. Yeah, damn. Exactly. Hello. Yes, exactly. So, so he writes this novelette called wool, uh, uh, just, just to get it out of his system. He'd been, it's been kicking around in there for a while. He writes it. He puts it out there. No hoopla, no razzmatazz, no marketing. A couple of people read it. They like it. Five stars, yada, yada. Yeah, in a few months, it's selling better than all his other books combined. People are banging on his virtual front door, demanding more. And the cool thing is, is that they're letting him know exactly what more they want to see. So they're telling him, here, write this. And he does. Just, just beyond badass. The resulting omnibus edition of Wool has spent considerable time in the Amazon Top 100, has been a number one bestseller in science fiction on Amazon, and has been optioned for a film. We won't name names. Ridley Scott. <coughs> um, but yes, that has happened as well. Yes, our guest host finally caved and got a literary agent. Uh, and, and, you know, whether this was before or after he drafted his fictitious interview with Natalie Portman in a hot tub uh, or before he put those Time Warp dance videos up on YouTube. Very unclear, but I'm hoping that the the literary agent is going to get on that real quick. Uh, but it doesn't really matter because we have him here right now. So, dear friends, please welcome to the big chair at the round table all the way from Jupiter no, wait, uh, Jupiter, Florida. That's it. Jupiter, Florida. <laughs> Mr. Hugh Howie. Hugh, my friend, thank you so much for taking time from what must be an amazing schedule and, and sharing your thoughts with us. We really appreciate it, sir.
2: Thank you, Dave and Lauren and, and thanks for this killer wine.
0: Stuff. <laughs> see, see, Lauren Lauren knows her wine and when she steals, she steals nothing but the best.
1: Stealing so. makes it sweeter. Awesome.
0: So, look, Hugh, I don't want to mince any words. I'm going to set our timer here, and I want to get down to our 20 minutes with Hugh Howie. So, let's roll on. Um, and, Hugh, here's here's something that intrigues me. Uh, you were talking about how when Wool first came out, it came out as a novelette, as, as a short story, basically. Uh, and you realized once things started taking off that it had to be a lot more than that. And so you had to adapt it. Somehow you had to expand and modify a short story into something that was much bigger. And my question is, how the hell do you do that? What's the process? (laughs) How do you make that happen?
2: Well, and it would have been easier if I'd have kept um, some of my characters alive at the end of the first story. uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah, I can see it, that, sure.
2: Yeah, it, it was complicated by, you know, I, I had nowhere for the story to go and no one left uh, standing to tell the story. So, you um, know, I, I asked myself, uh, you know, what would um, George R.R. R. Martin do in this series? And, and he would basically create a brand new character that you loved and then he would kill them as well. So that's, <laughs>
0: yes, exactly, exactly. And,
2: and I just, uh, I kept doing that until I had a character everyone loved so much that I figured they would they would quit reading the series. Uh, just to keep the character alive, but uh, you know, in their own minds. But they—they they didn't. They everyone kept reading, and uh, I was re- releasing these serially. So I had all this great feedback from readers as it was as the stories were coming out. And uh, but yeah, the challenge of figuring out how to turn a short story into a novel—it—it um, it, it wasn't unprecedented. Some of my favorite works growing up—you uh, mentioned *Interst Game* and your. In your intro, but right. that started as the Battle Room, a short story that got a lot of attention. Really, and so he expanded. Yeah, so he expanded to a novel and Fahrenheit 451, which um, you know, one of the great um, dystopian stories of our of our of the 20th century. That started as a short story called The Fireman. So you know, just you have a world and you have a theme and you have a tone and you just write more stories in that world and that's that's the pattern that I
0: took okay and and was it really just simply a matter of of layering in more character arcs or what, what was the first thing that you kind of wired into when it came time to start expanding and, and fleshing that out
2: well I, I knew I needed a, a new protagonist and there was no easy way to plop them into the second story so I used this second novelette as a bridge to introduce more of the world to the readers and also to set up the character who is going to take the lead for the rest of the series and I uh, really use that that book as kind of a, a transition book and it worked out really well it, it allowed me to set up a pattern that I was gonna break immediately but it, it helped <laughs> well know, as, as soon as I had readers expecting one thing, I would switch to something else. And I had that kind of set up from the beginning to keep them guessing. And uh, it's been one of my pet peeves is someone who watches serial drama with my wife. And like for the first five minutes, I'll tell her the whole plot because I've seen <laughs> these over and over again. And, and, you know, she'll throw a pillow at me and tell me to, to go write something in another room. And,
0: <laughs> and you do thus fueled with your disdain for the same structure over and over again. you You change it up.
2: Yeah, and I... The fun of, of writing whatever you want and publishing yourself expecting only your mother to ever read it is, you <laughs> you, you 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 know, I would read all the rules of writing. And, and, and then I would say, like, how can I break every one of these? And that's, <laughs> that's been the challenge uh, that I put under myself for, for the, the writing that I've done because I've always treated it as a hobby and a, a passion and a joy and not as a money-making career. I would imagine that's very liberating. It is, and then it made me a shitload of money. (laughs) Bam! Yeah,
0: there you go. Strategy complete. Okay. Rule number one: Don't kill off all your characters at the end of your first short story. Uh, Two: Write for your mom, and just be done with it. Okay. Awesome.
2: Actually, the rule the rule would be to kill them off at the
0: end of your short story. Yeah. Right. If we're gonna follow the Hugh Howey model, exactly. Good point. Good point. Or Shakespeare, you know, if it's good enough for Shakespeare, I I'll cop on. Through. Yeah, but they, there is no Hamlet two, dude.
2: I mean, Hamlet one, pff, it's over. No, but but, but then yet. you write about then you write about Rosencrantz and
0: Guildenstern. Yes. Our good dead. point. Good point. Exactly. Exact. Brilliant movie. Great play. Uh, it's too bad Brian's not here because he was actually in that play. I forget what, which one he played, but he played either Rosencrantz or Guildenstern. Well, now he's playing diaper daddy. So. Now he's playing diaper dad. Exactly.
2: <laughs> well,
1: uh, one of the questions that I had actually was that I I noticed in the description of wool that the entire world is underground, and I was actually just wondering how you took care of dealing with the the ambiance and explaining the the world building structure that you had set up, and um, whether or not that was something that you developed further and further in each subsequent story.
2: Yeah, I did. I one of the things I love about science fiction is, and fantasy is the same way the characters should not marvel over their world. Their world is the one they've always known. And the the neat thing about that is you get instead of these huge info dumps where you have characters saying, "Look how amazing, you know, all these everyday things are." Um you have them describing what to them is the banal, but to the reader is absolutely mind-blowing. And so these um my characters have no memory of humanity living above ground, and so what they what they think of as normal and what they see day to day, the reader has to slowly piece together what the world is like over a you know series of books there 's always new surprises and bits of information coming instead of doing it you know all at once it's uh, i the temptation when I wrote when I was younger the temptation was to tell everyone how cool my world was in the first you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. a character, have a line of dialogue. And I, what I've found is like being patient and dispensing information and, and morsels over a, the course of the work is so much more satisfying for the reader. Um, so at you know, the beginning of the first story, you have a, a guy walking up to his death and the way he, and, and he says it's so the very first line is that, you know, he's, he's marching up to his death. And his, he's banished, basically, for just saying that he wants to go outside. That's the worst sin possible. Huh. And so when you're reading this, you're thinking, what in the world is going on? And that state of temporary confusion, I think, is such a, a fun one to be in for readers of, of speculative fiction. Because there's not just characters to, to learn, but there's this, a new world and new rules to learn as well.
0: Absolutely. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Hugh Howey after this brief promotional break. The Flames Any who step through may stride across the world and beyond. A precious, precious few, the Ferryman, can guide you true through any flame and emerge from a crossing as young and strong as when first the flame kissed them. Fleets travel space for lifetimes, reach new worlds, challenge the black between galaxies, all thanks to the ferryman. But is there a price hidden in the ferryman's fire? A science fiction anthology featuring Matthew Sanborn Smith, J. Daniel Sawyer, Ed Robertson, Patrick McLean, Nathan Lowell, Brand Gamblin, Jason Andrew Bond, Jake Bible, and John Miro. Learn more at ServingWorlds.com. Walk the fire. The universe awaits. May the ferryman take you. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Hugh Howey. And now, did you find, Hugh, as, as when you were starting out writing, it? certainly by the time you are finished with the omnibus, this was old hat to you, but I would imagine that... that Trying to get inside the head of your characters, did you find yourself making assumptions that only a topsider would make uh, in terms of characters in this deep silo world? Did you have to? Did you have to school yourself to watch out for that sort of thing?
2: Yeah, I did. And not only that, I had to think of how different um, occupations would see the world they lived in. With but then this silo, there's a division of class and and labor and so how does a mechanic what kind of analogies and metaphors do they um, use to see the world and and someone who lives up top which is kind of the upper class how did how would they view people from the the bottom of the silo a place that not many people visit where things are greasy and rusted and mechanical and what are the people who you know um, dig the the mines and and bring up the oil and keep the machinery running you know, how do these people see each other differently?
0: Yeah.
2: And, yeah, it's constantly, That's to me, that's the key for writing is to get in your character's head and see the world and, and smell it and feel it and and sense it, you know, just in an utterly real fashion and, and then just describe what they're thinking and, and going through
0: what a What a great dissertation on world building and uh, different ways for for people because so many of us like me I love world building that's that's the thing that distracts the hell out of me when I'm writing running running anything um and and Lauren I think you and I when when you were on the show uh, uh we kind of got all sidetracked on on our own world building jag didn't we <laughs>
1: yes we certainly did yeah
0: but th- that's that's Hugh that's incredibly valuable to, to to get a feel for how that could actually be turned to advantage and and woven then into your character stories, uh, uh, and and giving them more strength, more moment, and at the same time sharing little tidbits of awesomeness about the world as well. That that's just that's fabulous. That's great.
2: Yeah.
0: Thanks. Yeah, I think it's
2: I think it's easier to add world building to your revision process than it is to take it away. Deleting is so painful.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and
2: if you tell the story with as little information. About the world as you can get away with whatever the plot needs and the character needs, and then as you go through the revision process, layer in stuff if, if necessary, but I think it's important to know your world and to write world building stuff on the side in notes but sure sure, um, sure. you know and so there are different rules in fantasy it can be different where the readers expect a lot of world building and they want you to just go on a a 10 page you know <laughs> info dump. It, <laughs> You know, and, and as many place names and mythological, you know, um, uh, neologisms as possible. Yeah. And see,
0: I don't know, man. I, I, I think I think people are kind of tired of that, actually.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, when I read like George R. R. Martin stuff, I just love that. Uh, I don't have to know anything except what's pertinent to the characters in that situation, and they let yes. me know what I need to know as it happens.
0: Yes. Very much so. Very. Now, much I, so.
1: I know in a lot of in a lot of writing, and I I do this in my own. Um, a lot of authors use weather to set the tone. And I was just wondering if there was something that you did that was analogous to that, since you don't exactly have the same kind (laughs) of weather patterns that we're familiar with.
0: Not underground. No.
2: Yeah. I, I don't get to use weather um, in the silo, but what I, what I can use is the, um, the kind of the storms of thought, you know, when I, when you want to make someone, uh, the reader understands it's a sad situation instead of rain. I just have the characters looking at the world through that lens of, of dilapidation and rust and wear and flecking paint and things that aren't, um, you know, uplifting. And then when you want uh, the reader, and I don't do this often in this series, but when you want a, the reader to feel a little bit happier, you you have children there you know their their laughter is can be the 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 sunshine that you shine in just a little bit um, nice so it, especially like often in in I, I want people to be absolutely miserable most of the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: roger that I, I i there was a quote that you had that was you know what what's the power of uh and the importance of 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 science fiction and fantasy and it was all these all these wonderful societal things, and then and then maybe occasionally giving people hope for the future. you're you're more of a dystopian guy, aren't you? You know, I am in my writing,
2: but in in real life, I'm just the uh, I'm such an optimist. I just think the world is getting better constantly. I, you know I read a lot of history and things just seem worse the f- the further back you go. so. Well, you just got
1: a movie deal, so that's to be expected,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I guess. But yeah, I I think um, I think what's more, I think conflict is more interesting in fiction. So you you don't you know write about unicorns and and yeah. fairies and you know up, uplifting things. And and I find it very easy in a dystopian story to constantly find sources of conflict for characters, and that pushes a story along.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, and if science fiction is going to be a, a, a gateway to a brighter future, then then what better way to assure that future than to walk us through our paces of everything that could go wrong between right. now and then, so when we get there, we're prepared.
2: Yeah, and, and science fiction has a, a long history of serving as a warning of sorts. You know, the and, and when I grew up, it was in the Cold War, and science fiction was very uh, anti-armageddon. You know, these this is the result of of. Of nuclear um, of threat. And so there's, there's always that ethical um, foundation under science fiction.
1: Sure. And we got brave new world and Frankenstein also too.
2: Absolutely. Yep.
0: Yeah, yep. Yeah. As, as, as humanity continues to push its own envelope, uh, perhaps right out of, right out of its uh, biosphere. Right. Um, uh, Hugh, we had a question from the Twitter sphere uh, uh, and I'm intrigued by this one. Um, the, the, Mike Bergonzi uh, writes, I'm, I'm looking for other military sci-fi uh, and was wondering who you felt uh, was a big influence on your own writing.
2: For military science fiction, there was a collection that came out, I think it was 2003, the year's best military science fiction. It was one of the best collections of short stories I ever read and, um, and heavily influenced me. And then not a guy who wrote straight-up military science fiction, but who was so good at it in parts of his stories. The the Peter F. Hamilton Naked God series. I don't know that one,
0: but I will. It, Holy crap. You,
2: it's one of the best trilogies you will ever read. Um, and his world-building, it's just... It, I've i have gleaned as much from him as Neil Stevenson and some of the other greats out there, but he, he has these armored exoskeleton, um, and, and it's just one point of view, one part of his storytelling, but it's some of the absolute best military science fiction uh, I think ever written.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Now, You actually, you you raise an interesting point, Hugh. Um, You you invoked uh, Neil Stevenson. uh, uh, You've invoked uh, several individuals uh, uh, citing them as, you know, the masters. And and (laughs) Lauren and I are right there with you. And I think everybody has their own notion of what a a master storyteller is. Could you quantify that for us just a little bit, Hugh? What, in your opinion, makes a master storyteller?
2: I think someone who can do it uh, Stephen King to me is the icon <laughs> yeah, for this, but someone who can do it in in multiple genres and and make it seem so easy that you can't even tell that he's doing it well because it, it, it when when something is is perfectly sublime it disappears it, it it you don't notice like when an actor is acting really well you just assume that they're playing themselves because right. there's no way they could be pulling that off um, and you know Stephen King Neil Stevenson. They can write hard. They can write science fiction. They can write straight-up fiction, uh, short and long pieces. There's nothing that they can't do, and that, to me, uh, speaks of a of a pretty rare and, and an impressive talent. Absolutely, uh, I think you know I might discover that I can do one. I haven't discovered it yet. Maybe I'll discover <laughs> I can do well, and then I could just copy and paste that over and over again. And well, and that's there's that's there's something to be said for that. I mean, there's. There's entire artistic careers built on, on that principle, and I think that is admirable to some degree, but the people who can do, it seems, anything, like um, Neil Gaiman, he, mm-hmm. he can write um, episodes of Doctor Who, he can write comics, he can write novels and... Poetry. Children's books. Children's books, yeah, the graveyards. Yeah. Everything I've seen from him, uh, his, his commencement speech... Which is one of the, oh. the most <laughs> things I've ever seen in my entire life. That he can do all of those things. You know, his I was at the Hugo's this last year and his acceptance speech moved me to tears. Wow and, Just and his
1: blog posts are beautiful.
2: Everything everything <laughs> about that guy is beautiful. If I I mean if, God, if I ever get my hands on that guy, it's gonna his be hair. <laughs> it's gonna be fight club, baby. <laughs> yeah, it, you it, and
1: all of the rest of the world.
2: Uh, he I and I just have respect for someone who can who, who puts talent and ability to, into anything like that and um, you know I, I imagine he's a great singer and dancer as well and sure, sure probably we a great actually cook. saw
1: him at the Unchained tour that he did uh, where they just got up and people told stories off the cuff and he's a great storyteller just talking oh my God, impromptu
0: storytelling Some
1: impromptu storytelling they, I guess they Damn. prepared a story just, just beforehand and every story every time he did a different show it was a different story every time
0: Damn, wow, that's awesome. See, and that's you want. You want a video camera. You just follow that around. Well, you let me ask you um, uh, along those lines. I mean, we're all everybody at this table is is working on their craft in one way or another. Um, but for you, sir, what, what do you consider to be your greatest asset as a writer? What, what do you bring to the table that, that is distinctly Hugh Howey? And, and do you do anything to, to nurture or reinforce that to make that strength even stronger moving forward?
2: I think the thing I'm best at is revision. Um, I don't know that my rough draft writing is all that great. I think, what I, I think my talent is I've been consuming stories my entire life, and I know a good story from a bad story. And what I can do is rearrange my own horrible rough drafts until I realize they're great, and it's almost at a, it's almost an, an accident, like moving uh puzzle pieces around until a picture emerges, and you're like well that's that's a beautiful picture and what what comes out of that is my, my writing is much smarter than I actually am
0: <laughs>
2: so I can never sit down and write even one of my paragraphs and it come out sounding as nicely as it can sound when i'm done with it but after seven or eight full revisions each of my paragraphs will, will sound smarter than i am oh,
0: brilliant absolutely absolutely
2: so i think my talent is like recognizing what um what makes for a good story and then my persistence to sit and and rearrange words until i can recognize it as being good
0: excellent outstanding good advice um, in, in several interviews here, you've talked about how you would like to, for example, write for the stage or, or explore a dozen different genres. Uh, there's other worlds you want to explore. Um wh- how do you prioritize that? What What do you think is is next? I mean, holy crap! You're you're sitting in a maelstrom of awesomeness, and all this stuff is pinging around. But somewhere, your writer brain is tugging on your shirt sleeve, saying, "Hugh, we need to start working on this." What is that that your that your writer muse is begging you to work on next? I've got a I've got
2: several stories that have been begging. To, to be written and they're all in in genres other than than science fiction which I've been you know immersed in for the last year or so with the <laughs> with the wool stories mm-hmm. um, so I've I've started a romance novel that I'm dying to finish and um, seriously and, and, oh yeah and published under my name so. Uh, bold
0: I, steps awesome that's very good yeah, cool. I'm,
2: I'm gonna piss off a lot of readers uh,
0: <laughs> with that, but you're but. gonna
1: show that you can't be you can't be
0: pigeonholed that's right can't hold him down and, and you'll earn mike cole's eternal respect because he's he's trying to do the same damn thing so awesome well
2: all the uh all the indie authors i know who are, who are just killing it are all writing romance and erotica so i'm, I'm just <laughs> uh, following their lead there you go <laughs> i also have a fantasy story that i've uh put the synopsis out several times and people keep begging me to write that next. And then I have a just straight up young adult coming of age story that uh, is probably one of my oldest story ideas that I keep meaning to write and never have found the time. And that's uh, that I've got to get that out of me. So um, all of those are vying for it's like having a stack of great books to read and, <laughs> and, and, you, and you can't wait to finish the one you're on. So you get to have that joy of choosing what to read next.
0: Sure. And yeah. so I'm I'm looking forward to that. Of course that's how wool started, man. You know, you had to get wool out of your system. Next thing you know, holy crap, you're all over the place. You're you're, you're jet setting, you're you're living living the writer's dream. So yeah. we can we can <laughs> we can only hope that that happens again and again and again. Uh but but I got to say right now I'm the, the clock sitting on my desk literally just it, it melted, it dived, it, a hole opened up, it got sucked in, and it's now underground in a silo somewhere. I don't know where it is, but <laughs> I assume that means we're out of time. Uh, so, Hugh, this this has been enlightening and inspiring and a great deal of fun. Thank you, sir, so much for making the time and and sharing some thoughts with us. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, thank you, Dave and Lauren. Thank you so much for this wine, man. I am like totally smashed <laughs> now. I have no idea what we just talked
0: about. Yes, <laughs> epic win, epic win. We'll we'll play it back for you uh, at five bucks a minute, and uh, we'll we'll go from there. No, we wouldn't. Quick, not do empty
1: that. his pockets.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Check for loose change. Uh, she him ah. up for
2: loose change.
0: <laughs> ah. Well, other than you, howie's loose change, Lauren. What are you taking away from this twenty minutes with? Did, did did anything jump out at you? you? Said, oh my god, that's awesome. I need to remember that.
1: Yes, um, all the the answer to the question about weather of looking through things uh, with a lens for the the gritty and a lens for the inner turmoil and yes. that pulling out the different details that are not necessarily set with with weather or but other things about the ambiance that you could think about and that actually made me go ah. Oh, I need to go. I need to go write something. <laughs> I need to go describe emotions.
0: Roger that. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, that
1: was, I think,
0: really awesome. I completely agree. I'm. I'm actually. I'm. I was afraid because you and I are illegitimate siblings that we would pick the same thing, but thank God we didn't. Because um, mm-hmm. I, I But the thing that I'm coming away with is that the world is normal to your characters, and and you know for 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 authors that are writing in a a normal-esque world like urban fantasy and so on, that's not so hard to remember. But if you're creating some whacked out weirdo world, uh, uh, then knowing that, and, and I'm not saying that Wool is whacked out and weird, and saying the stories I write are. Um, it's important to remember that the character's looking around at at a mist that that tumbles off into the void uh, is is commonplace and everyday. Uh, and to parse out that awesomeness of your of your world in small bits rather than in a massive info dump up front that that's invaluable invaluable advice for me. So. Uh, And friends, thank you as always for tuning in. Uh, uh, We always appreciate you being there for us and hitting the play button that completes the cycle. Uh, uh, so, and if you're, if you're digging it, and I know you did, I know that last 20 minutes just went by like that and you're going, wow. Uh, feel free to pay it forward, guys. Let the world know that the round table is out there, that we have amazing guest hosts like Hugh Howie on the line, uh, sharing wisdom with us every single week. Uh, you can drop out, drop us a review on iTunes, uh, uh, drop us a line at the table at roundtablepodcast.com. Many of you have, and we appreciate that so much. Uh, you can leave a comment out on the post out at roundtablepodcast.com. We're out on Twitter at Writers Podcast and on Facebook at facebook.com slash, wait for it, Roundtable Podcast. Yeah, you saw that <laughs> coming, didn't you? <laughs> we stayed up late coming up with that one now guys this has been awesome but it gets even better because in a couple of days we're gonna have Hugh back and we're gonna workshop an awesome story and and it's just gonna be a frothing free-for-all of creative mojo uh literary gold is gonna be flying around like missiles Uh, uh but that's gonna be just a couple of days from now so there's time to be spent Lauren what do you think our listeners should be doing between now and that next episode I would say writing. Writing I think is good. We've had a, we've had a variety of options and strategies proposed, but you know, I think consistently writing is a good one. And friends, I will tell you that you find what you're looking for. So look for awesome, look for look for the Argentinian red baby. Look for the good stuff and you will find it, I promise look
1: you. The <laughs> look
0: for houseboats. Look for houseboats. <laughs> yes, by all means and then sail them from Baltimore to Charleston very carefully. <laughs> so, <laughs> we will see you in just a couple of days until then you guys stay cool be frosty be awesome and we will talk to you soon bye-bye Bye. <laughs> this episode is copyright 2013 by the roundtable podcast and is released under a creative commons attribution non-commercial share alike license that means don't sell it but you can share it all you like And you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work, as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host, or learn more about the Roundtable podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast or you can send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.